Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Providence Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm Natalie, your host, and today we have Christopher back with us once again to talk about his latest BT article, Mitigating the Conflicts of Interest in the Financial Advisory Industry. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. So this this article is very interesting because mm. when I first uh, read it, uh, I wonder what triggered you <laughs> to write this industry mm. uh, enraging <laughs> piece article. Yeah. Well, I think this time around, I don't think I will make uh, anyone angry because I thought okay, it's a pretty balanced piece. I mean, if people are still angry after reading it, then I don't know what to say already because I thought it was a pretty balanced piece. La. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I did say a bit in the article. I mean, the, the last time I wrote about uh, compensation models of financial advisors, wealth advisors, or generally financial institutions was about 20 years ago. And um, I realized even after 20 years, you know, people still have certain misconception of uh, what the compensation models of uh, financial advisors are all about. Uh, and interestingly, recently, about uh, a couple of months back, or rather in the past few months, I have been getting quite a few questions on compensation models. And mm. I realized that that misunderstanding is still there. I mean, people are still uh, saying that, oh, you know, Provident, uh, we started a fee-based model, fee-based model. And then, yep. you know, we realized that we always have to sort of like gently correct that and say, no, 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 we are not fee-based. Mm. We are fee-only. Mm. And there is a difference between fee-based and fee-only. So I thought maybe it's time again for me to write an article to explain clearly the mm. three compensation models, not just in Singapore, mm. but globally. And that mm. would be commission-based, fee-based and fee-only. Uh, secondly, I mean, over the years, my views have changed. Uh, I wouldn't say changed, la, you know, it has matured. It's mm. not changed. I mean, I still very much believe in the fee-only model. Mm. But after being in practice for about 20 years, uh, it's been more, more matured. And I've traveled to different parts of the world, different markets, uh, generally the more developed markets in uh, wealth planning and all that. Mm. So I thought it's time to sort of write an updated piece. Mm. right? And perhaps the third reason is I've also been hearing over the past few years a lot about people coming up to say, you know, I'm a salary-based advisor and therefore uh, I'm conflict-free. You know, I'm a salary-based advisor, so I uh, always look after your interest. And I always find that not to be true. La, because, mm. I mean, you can be a salary-based person, but if your organization takes commission, that conflict of interest is still very real. Especially if your organization has a say on how you should be prescribing certain products, right? Mm. So I, I thought that, well, perhaps it's time to talk about not just how the advisors are being compensated, but also how the financial institutions are being compensated. And the two together, mm. there will always be some conflict. And of course, uh, for people who has read the article, uh, I think it's the first time I've said that even for us as a fee-only practice, mm. we also have... Uh, conflict of interest. It's just that um, for a fee-only uh, wealth advisory firm, the conflict uh, is a lot easier to mitigate. So it's all about mitigating. Like We cannot say zero conflict, but it's all about how we best mitigate that conflict of interest mm. for the benefit of our clients. Sure. Thanks, Chris. It, it's really a bit uh, confusing. Uh, so coming from a non-financial background, I also found, found all these terms a bit confusing when I first joined Provident about five to six years back. And then I know some investment platforms or uh, DIY platforms or robos, they also call themselves fee-only. But then mm. there's actually a difference between what we do here at Provident being yep. fee-only and what they do over there. Yep. So 
uh, I, I think it's a very good opportunity for you to also clarify this part uh, maybe later on in the podcast. Mm. But one thing that I found um, very interesting or I personally find very pertuit is why, you know, conflict of interest is actually a very straightforward concept, even for laymen like me, right? Mm. And I believe consumers out there would want to avoid this. Mm. But it seems like on the consumer front, many Singaporeans are still unable to accept paying a fee for wealth advice. Mm. I mean, we've been around for 20 years, mm. and even after 20 years, mm. uh, we are still the fee-only wealth advisory firm mm. in Singapore. Mm. And then on the government front, I'm also a bit confused as to why MAS has not stemmed down completely on commissions in the financial advisory space. Mm. So why do you think this is so? Is it you know because MAS is afraid that many people will be out of jobs or maybe many Singaporeans will then not be able to afford wealth advice mm. or not seek wealth advice because uh, of their resistance to paying a fee? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that's a very loaded question because uh, there are actually many parts to your question. Yep. But maybe first let me just say that one of the reasons why perhaps uh, many Singaporeans are still not used to paying a fee. Now, I wouldn't say that Singaporeans will not pay a fee. Now, mm. that's not true because obviously we have been doing this for the last 20 years. Mm. We're still here. Uh, we have many clients, you know, and therefore it, it's just a proof that Singaporeans will pay a fee or mm. people generally, right? Because we also have clients who are not Singaporeans, but they reside in Singapore. They pay a fee. So, I, I don't like it sometimes when I see survey and then people going out there to do poll and ask whether consumers will pay a fee for advice and then they come back and say, no, 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 you know, people won't pay a fee for advice. Mm. I, I don't like this kind of poll because, well, I mean, if you don't show value, people won't pay for anything. Even if it's $1, they won't pay for anything. Right? So we first have to show value before people can truly say whether they will pay a fee for anything at all. And perhaps that's the problem, Right? I think for the longest time, uh, our industry is not known to be an industry that will provide or has shown that we can provide advisory value. Mm. We may provide transactional value, meaning to say that people know us as, uh, know the industry as an industry that, okay, I want to buy insurance, I want to buy an investment product, I'll go to these guys and they will sell me a product. They probably will compare the product for me and they find the best product that's suitable to meet my needs. Mm -hmm. It's a transaction, mm -hmm. right? Generally, yes, I mean, I mean, advisors can say, I do the fact find, I do the need analysis, but it's still very transactional. It always ends with, okay, my advice shows that you should buy this product. And because it's like that, they cannot understand, I mean, consumers cannot understand why I should pay a fee for this. Mm. And they are so conditioned to not paying a fee, right? Because for decades, mm. uh, when they speak to their insurance agents, when they speak to the financial advisors, they don't pay a fee. And because of that, mm. this whole fee thing, even after 20 years, is very new to them. Mm. And because the, the, the whole compensation scheme of advisory industry and how the products are being packaged, the fees are not very transparent. So sometimes consumer cannot understand or cannot see that actually when I pay commissions, actually I pay more. When I pay fee, actually it might be more cost effective. Right. They, they can't take it apart. So mm. well, if I go out there today and I show, you know, I, I, I show very clearly the value that I'm providing and I show a comparison of the, the cost and all that, I'm quite sure the poll result will be quite different. Mm. Right? So that's my first answer to your question. Mm. The second part of your question is really about 
MES, right? Mm. Uh, why you know they don't stop commission? Uh, well, firstly, there is nothing wrong taking commission. I have to say that mm. there is a conflict of interest, but it doesn't mean it is illegal. It doesn't mean that people who takes a commission for uh, giving advice or selling a product mm. is is uh, they are dishonest. Uh, no, it's not that. It's just that we have to recognize that there is just a conflict of interest, but it's not wrong to mm. do that. So there's really no reason for MES to come in and say, let's stop this, because it's not wrong. But in the Financial Advisors Act, MES put in place a set of regulations with regard to remuneration. Okay, and all that is to again mitigate that conflict of interest. Yeah. Well, some years back, we have the Financial Advisory Industry Review. I think it was 2013, about 10 years ago, and there was uh, there were news that uh, MES wanted to ban commissions, mm. just like what uh, the Australian government did, and uh, even India and in the UK, uh, they banned commissions for people who want to call themselves a, a certain title. Mm. And uh, we thought MES would do that. Uh, MES didn't. Um, I do not know the real reason. I was not in the panel. Mm. Uh, but I've heard that the industry came together and lobbied against that uh, that initiative. Oh, how? Uh, I do not know how. Okay. Uh, where the associations can come together because there's always a consultation paper, right? Where MES, before MES put in place regulations, uh, there is always a consultation paper. Mm. Uh, I've heard, like I say, I've heard uh, that the industry came together and lobbied. Mm. Um, and it could be because of this that MES decided, well, to... Uh, change their minds. Uh, I I can't say it's wrong. I mean, there are valid reasons for that lobbying because yeah. uh, it is true that majority of the advisors out there are commission-based. Mm. And if suddenly commission is banned, well, potentially people can lose their jobs, right? And it is also true in the UK that when um, they sort of banned commissions and the advisors became a fee only, mm. a lot of uh, lower-income people, they... Uh, couldn't access advice, okay. right? And that's something that I talk about also in the uh, other article. So yeah. there are some challenges in wanting just to ban commissions outright. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I, I wasn't in the panel, but this must be some of the thought process that MES had in their minds before they decide, no, we're just going to let go, uh, mm. but we're just going to put in place a more robust regulation to mitigate this conflict. Sure. Like you've mentioned, I mean, you, you said that commission-based approach, so technically there's no right or wrong in either approach. Um, but a commission-based approach may be a more viable option for individuals uh, with less complex needs. Basically, if they don't have um, too much uh, money, right? Um, a commission-based approach or a commission-based advisor may be more suitable for them. But then, what makes it possible for us mm. to actually now serve the mass affluent? Something that you've mentioned in your at the later part of your article as well. Mm. So you're you saying that currently we serve the more affluent market, mm. right? And then now we are able to serve the mass affluent. Mm. So what exactly is it uh, that makes it possible for us to do so? And of course, does that mean that we potentially could also find a way to make the fee-only model work for even the masses, like the men on the street. Yeah. So I think I've said this many times in my other interviews. I mean, we don't sort of belittle uh, people with lesser income, mm. right? I mean, we, we, we are all given certain lot in life and we all earn certain income. We have different financial capacity. It just doesn't make sense for someone whom 
who has lesser wealth or earn a lower income to pay a fee for advice because their needs are uh, a lot simpler. And this is based on our experience. I know, and I kept saying this, that it may not be the most robust way to ascertain whether a person needs to pay a fee for advice. Mm. But the fact is, we've been doing this for the last two decades. And we know that for a person with larger wealth, uh, generally speaking, their needs are a lot more complex. Yep. For someone who's younger, uh, just started out working, earn maybe three, four $4,000 salary, uh, not married, their needs are a lot simpler, right? Mm-hmm. And I can give this person some general advice and this person can go, he doesn't need to pay a fee for advice. Mm-hmm. And, and that is why for the longest time, we have always been serving the more affluent families because they bring to us more complex issues that we uh, help them resolve. But then, you know, you take many of the calls that come in yeah. Right, and many times we get people who are mass affluent. They are not low income. They are good income earners, but they are not necessarily uh, high net worth yet. Yeah, but they have real needs. Are they, and their needs are getting more and more complex because they are sandwich generation. They have parents to take care of. Now they are earning more money. They want to deploy them. Um, but for the longest time, whenever they come, we will gently turn them away. Yeah. Right, we give them some general advice, give them some direction, and we don't we don't take the clients, right? And I always feel very bad about this because I know that we can really, really impact these people, mm-hmm. but the business model just cannot serve them. They have to pay us a certain fee for us to be commercially viable, but yet it would be too much a fee for them to pay because they really don't need such complex advice, right? So mm-hmm. there is this conundrum, and so we decided for a longer time that okay, no. To be fair to the clients and ourselves, mm. we won't take these clients. Yeah. But now it's different because I think we have reached a stage of our business life that we have grown so much. Mm. Uh, we have dot, we have that economies of scale. Okay. We have uh, enough asset under management, uh, and a lot of our costs now they are fixed costs, right? I mean, we have our investment team, our solutions team that does the research. They are there anyway, right? Mm. So now. Uh, we would be able to design a model to be able to serve the mass affluent. Mm. We are able to keep the advice suitable for them mm. uh, and they pay us a reasonable fee. They are still able to get the same quality advice that we give to the affluent families. And it's all because we have grown and we have now the economies of scale. When we first started, we don't have the economies of scale. Mm. right? And we can't. we just can't do it. But I think now we can. Okay. Is it fair to say that actually there are needs are still less complicated than the affluent. But then because uh, they have more and more growing complex needs mm. uh, in the near future, especially balancing between uh, mm. taking care of their parents and also their kids, mm. children's education, retirement. Uh, so that's why we decide that it's important to start early. I mean, that's what we always mm. preach, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, their needs are definitely less complicated than the affluent. I mean, a lot of the affluent clients, they come, I mean, they are, I mean, just as an example, mm. it's not the only example, but just an example, their assets are in different jurisdictions. Mm. They have enough wealth to deploy their assets in different parts of the world, right? And that is added complexity. Yeah. But for the mass affluent, most of the time, their assets are here in Singapore. Mm. So that makes it simpler already. Mm. But, Yes, because of the growing needs of these individuals or families, like I mentioned, and you said that as well, right? They have parents to take care of, they have children. Now they are getting their first house or maybe second property. Mm. Uh, so it becomes more complicated. They have liabilities, they have dependents, their insurance needs become more complicated. Mm. Uh, they got more excess cash now to invest. Mm. Um, yeah, so because of that, um, I think 
they have reached a stage of their life whereby it actually makes sense for them to pay a fee for advice. Right. It's in fact more cost efficient for them to pay a fee for advice. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's why, you know, um, almost a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, we started a new team to be able to serve this segment of clients. Okay, can. So um, moving on, uh, in your article, you also talked about how the compensation structure is just but one factor in choosing a suitable mm. trusted advisor. Mm. There are other considerations, uh, such as how an advisory firm builds an advisory and not a sales culture, mm. institutionalizes its practice, deepens advisory depth, and many others. Would you like to take this chance to elaborate more on this podcast? Yeah, I'll, pr- I'll probably write a bit more about this in my uh, uh, article on the Business Times for sure. Mm. But just for this podcast, I'll say this, right? I mean, just because I'm a fee-only advisor, it doesn't mean that I'm competent. Mm. It doesn't mean that I can give good advice. Mm. The fee-only model is just one way whereby we try and mitigate conflict of interest. When we started the fee-only practice in uh, 20 years ago, mm. the main reason why we become fee-only is because we say, okay, we want to take away this one factor that creates a conflict so that clients know that when they come. The one thing they definitely will know is that we are not going to recommend anything that is in our interest mm. but against their interest. We want to take away you know, this suspicion, this worry. They can you know, be rested to know that, okay, this part of the equation is taken care of. But we still need to prove to the client that we are competent, yeah. right? And so that is why I uh, have said that there are other factors in choosing an advisor, just simply because a person say I'm fee only or uh, for that matter, I'm salary based. It doesn't mean that he's competent, yeah. right? So there are other factors to consider. The advisory debt is very important, mm. right? The advisory debt comes from experience, uh, and we've been doing this for 20 years, so I, I, I really know what I'm talking about when I say advisory debt comes from experience, not just the successes that you have gone through as a firm, but also the failures. Advisory debt comes from training. Mm. Uh, in a fee-only practice, our training is really on advice. Our training is less on products, right? because we don't make money from selling that product. So that deepens the advisory debt. It comes from culture. I mentioned uh, culture as well. That's very important. Why? Because... Well, imagine, you know, imagine in, a, uh, in an organization where the focus is on sales and on uh, uh, commissions and on awards. I mean, it would be very difficult even if you don't want to focus on this, mm. right? It would be difficult because you are in a community of people that encourages you to do that, yeah. right? And if you do all so-called all the right things and you are not compensated as well as your fellow colleagues, you are going to be affected, right? Because mm. you are not going to be recognized as much. Right? So that culture is very important. So yes, you put in place a structure to prevent that conflict of interest, but you must also build that culture, that community whereby mm. day in, day out, people are all talking and focusing on advice. People are talking about you know, how best to do the right things for our clients. That, that, that culture of encouraging each other uh, is very, very important. Yeah, so these are some of the factors. I mean, I, I said culture, I said uh, advisory, that one more, right? What did Institutionalized I, uh, practice. Yeah, uh, yeah so... Uh, institutionalizing a practice was something that we spearheaded 20 years ago. Mm. This is to make sure that advice is consistent. Yeah. right? To make sure that when a client walks into Provident and he, uh, he speaks to three different people but say exactly the same thing, he can be assured that he's going to live with exactly the same uh, advice. 
this is not the case today in the industry, mm. right? Most of the, the the structure in the industries, the advisors are really like agents. They are part with the firm, right? The firm is just a platform to support them in terms of compliance, admin. But the advisors are free to give advice in the way that they deem best for their clients, mm. right? Now, not that again the advisors are doing a bad job. It's just that different advisors have different models. They have different opinions about things, you know. Uh, so. When you go to a firm, now you're not sure whether if I speak to three different advisors from these firms uh, and say the same thing, will you come out with exactly the same advice? So right. these things are all very important for me, uh, I feel, mm. right, in determining whether an advisory firm is good or not. Okay. I think whatever you said makes a lot of sense, but then it's really a lot like more top-down approach, I would mm. say. So it's really coming from a company standpoint. So, I mean, it's very hard for us to really control or decide uh, for all the financial advisory companies out there to actually all adopt this this approach, right? Mm. So I I kept thinking it, it feels like consumers are actually at the mercy of financial advisors or, or financial companies. But do, do you think this is this is really the case? I think I mean it's it's quite strange, right? Because uh, in other industry sometimes you always say customer is always first. Mm. Right now, although I don't hundred percent agree with that statement, but at least the mindset of customers is that you know the customer is always first. Mm. But yet, as you mentioned, right in the financial advisory industry, you mentioned that we are, we are really under you know, under the mercy of the advisors. Now, I I don't think that it has to be the case. Mm -hmm. That's why, as much as you are getting an advisor to advise you and do the work for you, I feel that consumers themselves, they need to take personal responsibility. They need to be financially literate. They need to educate themselves mm. with the basic knowledge of investments, ins uh, insurance, the concepts. I mean, that's why we do so many talks and we write so many articles and yep. we put them all on our website. It's really for the consumers out there to understand what they should demand from their advisor. They must demand certain level of competency and standards. Mm. Right? and not let the advisors do whatever they want. Yep. If they know that there is a conflict of interest for commission-based advisors, they must ask the commission-based advisors, like, now look, obviously you have a conflict. Mm. Tell me how you're going to mitigate the conflict. I mean, that's not a wrong question to ask. Mm. right? And the advisors must then say, yes, there is a conflict. Mm. I mean, these are the things I put in place to mitigate it. And the consumers must be satisfied with it before they engage the advisor. right? So I think... If you are listening and you are a consumer, you have a lot of power. Mm. Okay, you have a lot of power to determine the kind of advice that you should be getting. Don't just go with anyone. Right? I mean, obviously, you have to go with someone that you like and you are able to engage in a lifelong conversations with. Yeah. But however, consider some of the things that we have shared here, right? Mm. A conflict of interest, advisory depth, the culture of the organization. How can an organization uh, do that and you must be satisfied with that the problem with uh, the third factor I mentioned without institutionalizing I mean all of us will one day exit this business mm. uh, we either retire or unfortunately we passed away your case is going to be passed to someone else in a firm and there's no consistency you start all over again right so that yep. to me being an institutionalized business is putting clients interest first because you just want to make sure that if your advisor is not around for whatever reason your family needs is still well taken care of. Mm. Thanks, Chris. I think you raised a very good point that consumers actually have a lot more power than we know. Uh, 
maybe I'll just share this small conversation I had with a colleague uh, I th- some months back. Like, I've heard from them that uh, I think financial planners in Europe, mm. they actually refuse to put all their credentials, the MDRT, COT, TOT credentials on their link cards mm. and on their LinkedIn profiles. Mm. Because once they put it up there, the consumers in Europe actually know mm. that they are just very good salespeople, mm. right? It doesn't make them good advisors, but mm. they are very good salespeople. It means they've made a lot of sales and they earn a lot of commissions. So consumers in Europe actually avoid uh, mm. people or financial advisors who actually mm. put this on their name card. But then in Singapore, it's very different. Mm. Uh, the FAs here, they actually wear it kind of like a badge of honour. And it's mm. also a credential that I think consumers look out for, right? So, so it's... I guess, like you said, uh, it's very important that we, we equip ourselves with the, the right amount of financial knowledge mm. so that we know how to differentiate uh, what's good advice from bad advice and how mm. to differentiate between uh, uh, whether we want to engage an advisor or not. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I'm actually yeah, quite surprised why we haven't caught up with that. I mean, maybe because we are, uh, although we are a developed country in this area of uh, the financial industry, we are not as developed uh, like in countries like UK, Australia or, mm. or US, which I travel a lot to. Mm. Uh, but it, it's true. I mean, the MDRT, COT, TOT, now not to put down this title, yep. uh, 25 years ago, uh, mm. when I first started in the insurance industry, uh, I had those titles as well. Mm. And I've gone for conventions and they are really good conventions, mm. right? And the conventions are teaching a lot of correct things uh, as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a good convention to go but we have just got to accept Mm. the fact that these titles they don't mean that a person is competent advice it just means that this title or rather this person is able to sell a lot of insurance products right Mm. mdrt cot tot is an insurance industry uh titles right and i think there's nothing wrong for advisors to put it down if they want to Mm. right but consumers just need to be very clear that their advisor has achieved certain standard of sales. Mm. Right? Advice is a different thing uh, altogether. And I think advisors also need to know that, that you know, when they go out there and they tout all these titles, uh, it's not really a representation of how competent you are in terms of giving advice. Mm. It just means that you are very good in sales, which, well, good job. You know, if you can do that, then yeah, good job. Be happy about it. Yes. But just know that there is a difference between sales and advice. Okay, thanks for all this very good insights, Chris. So that's all for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on mitigating the conflicts of interest in the financial advisory industry. A big thank you to Chris again for joining us. If you like this episode, follow our podcast and follow us on social media for similar content. As always, thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. All analyses, views or opinions from interviews, recommendations and other information broadcasted, podcasted or published herein are provided for general information purposes only. Information expressed does not take into account any specific situation, particular needs or objectives and should not be construed as specific advice or a recommendation. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal or tax professional before taking any action. Provident Limited does not accept any liability for any loss whatsoever arising from any use of the information broadcasted, podcasted or published herein. 
All contents and information contained herein may not be copied or reproduced in whole or in part by any means without prior written consent of Provident Limited.